0: To the RTI time machine. Today's time traveler is John Van Triest and the destination. Taipei, 1968. On February 28, 70 years ago, the most traumatic period in Taiwan's history began. Resentment against Taiwan's new KMT government exploded in the streets. The government's violent response shook a generation of people and left a scar that still runs beneath Taiwanese society today. But the events of February 28, 1947 were only the beginning. A campaign of repression and murder called the White Terror Period began. It didn't let up. In 1949, Taiwan was put under martial law, a situation that would continue into the 1980s. There are plenty of peace memorials around Taiwan remembering the victims of this period. But a trip to the place where many of them were actually held hits you with the hard realities of these years in a way that visiting a peace memorial can't. The Jingmei Human Rights Memorial and Cultural Park, site of a former detention center in Taipei, has been kept largely unchanged. You walk in and you face the same claustrophobia and the same brutal concrete that those held here on political charges once did. The message here is simple, the free and open society Taiwan enjoys today is not something to be taken for granted. During the decades of martial law, ordinary civilians could be brought before a military tribunal for certain offenses, including sedition. And the site of the prison was originally occupied by a facility used to train experts in military law. With no shortage of public offenders, they needed them. Some of the original school buildings are still here. But in 1968, the Taiwan Garrison Command's martial law section moved into the site. A detention center was built, and according to one account, around 75% of inmates here were being held for political crimes at one point. It's thought that 200 to 400 people were held here. A number of these inmates were not your average prisoner. There were famous writers. One of them, Bo Yang, was arrested in 1968 for translating an American comic strip in a way that was seen as a jab at the government. Then there was radio personality, Cui Xiaoping, who disappeared in 1968 at the peak of her career. Even senior intelligence officials could find themselves held here if they weren't careful. The charges could easily be fabrications. Any kind of confession could just be extracted. One example of this can be found in a string of suspects who were rounded up several months after two explosions in 1970. There were more than a dozen of them, and the museum tells us they didn't know one another well. But the case was closed and the sentences passed. To this day, no one really knows who was actually behind those explosions. Some of the people imprisoned here are perhaps better known now than they were at the time. Among their number were members of the so-called Kaohsiung Eight, leaders of a human rights protest in 1979. After democracy arrived, they'd go from protest leaders to political leaders. Annette Liu, for example, would go on to become vice president, while fellow detainee Chen Ju is currently the mayor of Kaohsiung, the same city where that protest was held. The government insisted that there were no political prisoners in Taiwan. But during the 1970s, lists of names were secretly compiled from sources like medical records and on more than one occasion, smuggled abroad. The military courtrooms where prisoners' cases were tried have been left as they were, the judge's bench towering over the accused and backed with red curtains. A lawyer meeting room has also been left as it was. Of course, few bothered to hire lawyers. There wasn't much point once you ended up here. One sign also tells us that not everyone who went through this court-martial process lived. It points out the spot where those who received death sentences were released from their fetters before being taken away to the execution grounds. For the rest of the prisoners, once processed and sentenced, the cell block was home. Except for single cells reserved for ringleaders, most had a number of people living in cramped quarters using the single squat toilet provided as toilet, bath, and clothes washing basin. Everyone tried to keep these as clean as they could. A brief exercise period was allowed every day. Chess was permitted, and prisoners could check out censored, out-of-date reading material from the prison library. Black and white photos show that there was even the occasional prison performance. But beyond that, many prisoners could look forward to a life of drudgery and hard work. Some of them were sent to the prison laundry and stitching factories, washing and repairing an endless stream of clothing and uniforms that came in. Their washing equipment and ironing stations are in the same places where they left them. Another prison labor group made objects for order, including handicrafts that would be sold to foreign tourists. Prisoners with a medical background were even co-opted to help those who developed psychological problems. There were a few slivers of light for those locked away here. After a conviction, letters were allowed, though they were censored and subject to a 200-word limit. There were also visiting days when relatives could buy goods from a prison store to make life easier for those on the inside. For 10 minutes, these relatives could then see each other through a pane of glass and have a conversation over a phone. But every word of the conversation had to be in Mandarin, the language imposed by the government and the native tongue of only a few of the prisoners. Those who broke rules like this had their conversations cut off. To save time, many secretly wrote messages on their hands and flashed them through the glass when no one was watching. But a sinister-looking surveillance room near the visiting area shows that someone usually was watching, and listening too. In this prison, surveillance was everywhere. Conditions weren't the same for everyone. In 1985, a special unit was built for one military man who had been arrested under foreign pressure. He was one of those implicated in the murder of a California-based dissident. Over here, there was more room and more access to visitors. Such was Taiwan under martial law. Martial law only ended in Taiwan in 1987, and political crimes only ceased to be after changes to the law in 1992. 1992 also saw the Taiwan Garrison Command, the agency that ran the detention center, dissolved. In 2007, the now decommissioned prison was turned into a monument to human rights. Some of the site's most famous inmates come back here now and again. As democracy has taken root and some former prisoners risen to positions of power, this has become a symbol of vindication for their struggle. But they are the lucky ones, and their stories make up only a small fraction of those told here. Much of the exhibit space remembers those caught up in the violence of their time, and those whose lives were cut short during the initial purges. There are graphic drawings of torture and graphic scenes of prison cells too crowded to lie down in. Then there are the stories of those who were imprisoned elsewhere. These include the stories of people transported to Green Island, a virtual penal colony off Taiwan's coast that still has a reputation as a prison. And of course, there are also stories of resistance, documented in photographs and publications. Pictures show Taiwanese exiles marching in Japan and the US, demanding justice for those imprisoned in places like this. Photographs of all of these people, the victims and the fighters, look out over the exhibition halls, where artifacts and models show the workings of state repression. Taiwan's 91% score in this year's Freedom House Survey of Global Freedom might lead some here to feel complacent, like they don't have to think about this history. But this space shows that there once was a world where these freedoms didn't exist, and it says loudly to those who enter that none of the freedoms Taiwan enjoys were inevitable. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw.